From American Salon Magazine and .com, I'm Gordon Miller, and this is American Salon Stories, our weekly podcast featuring some of the most interesting people we know. I am very excited about today's podcast. We have a return guest, Anthony Whitaker. Uh, he was out, he was with us just a couple of weeks ago. We had a brilliant conversation. We had such fantastic feedback from so many people, and we didn't get to talk about everything. So today we're doing part two. We're going to be talking about the big idea of change. Let me introduce you to him. Anthony is an internationally acclaimed, award-winning stylist, turned salon owner, turned educator, motivator, business coach, and best-selling author of Grow, a must-have series of four books on creating success in the salon. He shared best practices and big ideas on salon management, marketing, team building, finance, and retail in more than 50 countries around the world. He comes to us once again today, all the way from London, England, by way of Skype. Welcome to the American Salon Stories podcast, Anthony Whitaker. Well, Gordon, thank you very much. That was such a nice introduction, and it's a, a, a real honor to hear that the first recording we did was so successful, and it's uh, it's great to have the opportunity to be back again talking to your listeners on this great podcast. So, so this is a, it, your first one has done exceptionally well. You're in you're in the top five, which is quite an achievement because all of our podcasts are, have been popular. But the but to make the top five in just a short couple of weeks is a big deal, and um, and we have not brought back a guest for a second time so quickly. So you should be you should be very pleased. <laughs> well, I am, and uh, as I say, thank you again for your listeners for such a positive response. So, Anthony, when we finished our last podcast, you and I had a chance to talk afterwards um, while we were still hanging out on Skype. And, you know, I, you had this moment where you were like, but I never got to talk about what I wanted to talk about, <laughs> <laughs> which which I know you've got a lot of passion around the subject change. And, and I will say to our listeners, you know, we don't script these podcasts. And as you know, I don't even give you any questions in advance, which I know can be very frustrating to professional educators and, and speakers, but I think that's what makes them so engaging. And but when you told me that, you know, I'm such a, a passionate fan of the word change and, and the process that, that all around it and what's happening to our industry. So immediately I was like, oh my gosh, we have got to have you back. And so we are going to talk about change. And I know you you look at it from the point of view of, of technology, I, I think uh, uh, consumer expectations you mentioned to me, and then the bigger salon business model. So let's jump in and, and, and start talking about change from your point of view as a, as a global educator who sees it from every angle. Fantastic. I mean, I, you know, well, this industry is a change industry. That's what we do. We change people's appearance and uh, we do it all day, every day. And yet at a, in a business context, you know, so many salon owners are, are very hesitant. They're very slow off the mark in terms of embracing changes that are going on in uh, the, this industry and in how they run their businesses. And I often, you know, when I do a, a PowerPoint presentation on this, um, there's a couple of charts that I, I like to, you know, sort of hero with at the beginning. And one of them is a great quote by Bill Gates, which I think just completely epitomizes what change is all about. And what he said, and I, I forget when he said this, it's sometime within the last 10 years, I'm assuming, he said, in three years from now, Every product my company makes will be obsolete. The only question is whether we make it obsolete or whether someone else will. Now, look, I think that that statement, that quote, that mindset, that way of thinking 
It doesn't just apply to Microsoft and, you know, the products that, uh, you know, are in the, the technology world. I think that that applies to how we do business across the board. I think it affects everybody. And, you know, really, the only question is, is, is whether you embrace that change and move forward yourself and, you know, live on the edge or whether you try and stay where you are and change comes up behind you. And, you know, before long, what you do and how you do it very quickly becomes irrelevant. And that's why I absolutely love the uh, new way of thinking that every new generation brings along because every generation has different values and different ways of working. And it's that different way of thinking and different way of looking at the world that enables us to overcome the challenges and create the opportunities in our life. And that's what's you know so important if we want to succeed and if we want to grow, that people understand that the way that it is now is just that, you know, it's the way that it is now. It wasn't this way before. It wasn't this way five years or 10 years ago, never mind, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And it will not be that way in the future. And if you don't embrace change and if you don't grow and evolve with it, then the market will very quickly grow and evolve around you. And as Bill Gates says, that it's only a matter of time before you find yourself irrelevant. So, as professionals, as business owners, what we've got to do is look at change and look at what it means to you and your business and look at the opportunities that are there and how we can capitalize on them. And I think, you know, listening to you, it makes me think from a, a salon owner perspective and remembering that 85% or so salon owners in America actually still do hair behind the chair. And if we think of what you're talking about from the point of view of hair and service and the service menu, I think it might be easier for everybody to relate because I think hairdressers do get when things need to change on the service menu, when new color techniques come out, it's time to add it to the menu. When you know, a lot of salons don't have perm on the menu today, and there's a reason for that. Um, so I think better stylists, more savvy owners get this concept as it replies to the technical work of what they do. And I think a big part of what you're saying is there's all these other things to relate this big idea of change to that impact how you're going to do in, in your professional life, whether it's how you sell retail, whether it's how you manage your desk, whether it's how you market yourself. I mean, is that a fair analogy? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, because we're in the, uh, the, the, the fashion business, because hair grows, um, and because trends are constantly changing, I think we're very comfortable with uh, evolving uh, what we do and how we do from a fashion point of view. But I think from a business point of view, that a lot of salon owners look at change from you know a place of fear, and they want things to stay the way that they currently are. And things will not stay the way they currently are. They never have, and they never will do. So, you know, it doesn't matter that you don't like the changes. It doesn't matter that some of those changes are not fair, so to speak. You know, those changes are happening, whether you like them or don't like them. And it's not a case of anyone, any one person or any one company can stop them. It's, you know, it's much bigger uh, forces that are, are at play that affect these changes in our life. And, you know, in my mind, there are three main things, you know, possibly four, but three main things that are driving change in our industry. And they're all feeding off each other and no one can stop them. One feeds the other and it's completely unstoppable. You can't legislate against it. You know, it's bigger than anyone or, or anything. And it's, you know, society as a whole that, that drives it. So, you know, we need to, 
you know, ride that wave of change and look for the opportunities that are there. So the three things, um, you alluded to them, but I, and I mentioned them earlier, I think, you know, the technology consumer expectations and the salon business models, and then we'll get into some other stuff after that. But what, you want to tackle them one by one? You want to talk a little bit about technology and the change that you see that's having an impact on us? Definitely. Well, you know, from the, from the technology standpoint, I think one thing that's really important to acknowledge now is that every business is now a technology business. That's a really important statement that, you know, technology has and it continues uh, to, to change and affect dramatically every area of our life. You'll often hear these statements. I might have mentioned it on our last call because, uh, you know, I'd, I'd read something that uh, Al Gore had said uh, or heard something that Al Gore had said on a TED talk where he said that, you know, there are now more mobile phones on the planet than there are people. And, you know, that sort of statement, when you think of how long mobile phones have been in existence, is is massive, the impact that that has on our life. In fact, it's not even correct to call them mobile phones anymore because they're not just a phone. I mean, it's something like 20% of the usage of your phone is for making phone calls. It is now, you know, basically it's a computer. It's a device that we all walk around with in our back pocket. And, you know, even going back 10 years, if I told you 10 years ago that you were going to have a device in your back pocket that, would essentially, it gives you access to every bit of knowledge that mankind has ever had, and that it would replace all these tools, all these devices that you currently were using. So whether it was a, a, a camera, or whether it was a, a, you know, a fax machine, or, you know, a, a Sony Walkman, or a Discman, or whatever. Or a, P- um, or a PC, for that matter. Exactly. All these things have, have been dramatically affected. In fact, you know, you've got entire industries, you know, huge multinational corporations have, you know, ceased to exist, literally because of the possibilities of this digital world, and in particular, this mobile device. So, you know, you look at companies like Kodak, I mean, uh, Kodak, you know, when I was growing up, it was a a huge company on the landscape. Um, I mean, Kodak still exists, but essentially, Kodak has been decimated by this digital world that we live in, and this failure to you know, anticipate it and embrace change. And instead of being, you know, yesterday's news, they should have been at the forefront of that. But instead, I mean, I suppose if we use the, the name Apple, Apple as a company is literally, you know, decimated, um, uh, you know, the, this whole world of photography and film and, and um, you know, bought this digital device so that we all now use our, our device to take photographs. Um, then you have, you know, businesses like um, Uber. I mean, Uber... Uh, in in uh, London, they have 30,000 black cabs in London, and there's 35,000 Ubers. Well, you know, Uber didn't even exist 10 years ago. Now, it's the biggest taxi company in the world. It's the most valuable private firm that there's ever been. And, you know, things like that, Airbnb is another example. You know, they've completely revolutionized the hotel industry. And again, 10 years ago, they didn't even exist. You've got um, things like Spotify and iTunes. They've destroyed the music industry. They've, they've changed. Well, they haven't destroyed it. They've changed the business model completely. So they've destroyed the store on the high street that we all used to go to to buy our CDs or our you know, vinyl, heaven forbid. And you know, now we download 
Um, you know, that's how we access music. And you know, likewise, you know, Netflix has completely changed how we, you know, watch movies. And, you know, there used to be a blockbuster or video easy or whatever, you know, depending on the country you lived in, you know, store on every high street. Now they literally don't exist. And, you know, Amazon, uh, they've changed everything, you know, again. So it's all of this is because of this digital world that we live in. And all of those things are now access via that device that we carry around in our back pocket. And, you know, it's, it's, as an industry, we would be really naive to, to not accept the fact that, yes, maybe the touchy-feely side of hairdressing, what we do with our hands, that, that creative, that personal element of dealing with clients is somewhat protected, but I don't think you can even take that for granted. But everything around that service, everything around how we do business, how we learn, how we book appointments, how we um, how we do our banking, how we run our businesses, how we teach people, how we do consultations, how clients book appointments with us, how we do our marketing to them, how we select color, how we record information, everything around it has changed. And it's predominantly been changing because of that small mobile device that nearly all of us have got in our back pocket. And regardless of people's age, whether... It's the eight-year-old girl who was across from me in the Apple store recently while I was getting my phone fixed up, um, who was typing like a crazy person on her phone and actually setting up a phone at the Genius Bar. She was eight. I had to ask her mother how old she was. And she was doing things that I still can't do, which blew my mind. And then my 80-some-year-old mother, who uses Yelp, consumers... Um, are using this stuff. And because they're using your, this stuff, if we, the industry, are not participating in some way, shape, or form, we lose. Exactly. And that, well, that leads perfectly into, into this statement that, you know, one of the uh, uh, seminars that I do is called Grow My Color Business. And one of the things that I talk about in that seminar is how um, technology has also, not only has it made it easier for us to be informed and educated, but it's made it a lot easier for clients to be informed and educated. So if you go on YouTube, for example, and you type into the YouTube browser, how do I color my hair at home? You get over 33 million results. So it's looking at this technology in a positive way as to how it helps us grow our business and develop our business and, you know, the effect that it's having change uh, having on our business in that context. But it's also having an effect on our business from the context that it's making the consumer uh, uh, more educated, more informed than ever before. You know, 33 million results on YouTube for how to color your hair at home. Well, those 33 million tips, those bits of advice they didn't exist before. So you're competing against that. You know, again, uh, as, as another example, there's a, a, a blogger, an influencer, um, her name Zoella. I don't know if you're familiar with Zoella. Zoella's an English uh, blogger. She has over 11 million subscribers. Um, so it's completely changed how clients are inspired. My, my daughters you know, follow uh, Zoella. She recommends products and, you know, she shows them how to do hair and how to do their makeup and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, so the internet, apps, bloggers, this changing environment, it's it's changing how we do hair. It's changing how clients are educated and formed and inspired. To give you an example of what I mean by that, there's a girl in her bedroom, Zoella. She has 11 million subscribers. Now, to understand how big that is, British Vogue 
has 200,000 copies that they print each month. Now, Zoella has 55 times more subscribers than what British Vogue produces in copies. I mean, it's such a changing dynamic, the way that people consume information, the way they're educated, inspired and informed is changing all the time. And that has repercussions into our industry. What hasn't changed is, is the consumer, the client looking to go to a salon, still looks at another human being as the best referral point, as the best source of who should I go to? What should I get? What should I do with my hair? Going back 30, 40 years ago, before we had this technology, people asked friends, people asked someone on the bus next to them. One of the reasons these influencers are, are having the impact on the world that they're having is they are real human beings who are giving real, quote unquote, authentic opinions. And the world is reacting to them in ways that when we think about it, we really shouldn't be that shocked. You know, it's just they have a platform that didn't exist before. So referrals, so that again, that human um, opinion um, that is so different than an advertisement or, you know, marketing traditionally. Um, to me, it, it all makes so much sense. And it's a very exciting time as well as a challenging time. Exactly. And, you know, I completely agree with you that the you know, the fundamental thing that underpins what we do is, well, there's two things. It's A, that, you know, you can't even have the conversation about how to use this technology and how to use apps and social media, et cetera, without saying that the fundamentals are A, that you're good at doing hair, you know, because no matter how well you embrace all this technology, no matter how clever you are with it, you know, it, this industry is about building up a a, a client base that like what you do, not just what you post, but like what you do. So, you know, it's it's the, the fundamental, you know, principle of everything has got to be about A, that you cut and color, dress hair well. Without that, nothing's going to save you. Then the second point is what you just talked about is the experience that you give people. And, you know, when we then take, um, you know, good uh, good technical services, good creative services. Plus, we deliver people a great experience when they come to when they come to see us. And then, when you're able to finish that off with using this technology, like social media, for example, or all the various apps that we've just talked about, then that's what takes you, you know, stratospherically into another level. But you've got to have the the good. Um, hairdressing skills as a platform, and you've got to be giving people that great experience. And then using uh, apps, particularly social media, for example, then just enable you to leverage that absolutely and go stratospheric with your business. And that's what's happening with a lot of young people today. I want to go back to tech, something you, you mentioned about technology or, or change, I, th I think, generally, and, and that's Amazon. Um, I'm fascinated. I'm a, I'm a student, I, I as, as so many people are, of Amazon and the impact they're having on the world. It's, it's crazy. And, and I want to suggest that um, everybody Google Amazon Salon and Spa because Amazon has launched a, an entire section of the website that is dedicated to professional products. And so you've got professional brands. They by way of agreement with the, the brands that participate, they've gotten rid of the, the, the so-called diverters on Amazon. There's price protection. There's a lot of interesting thing happening. I pointed out, though, that Amazon, um, to your larger point of, of technology and what's happening with our industry, Amazon is here. They are participating in the industry in, in some fashion. It's going to be interesting to see where it takes us. So that's number one. And I also want to say about Amazon, when you talk about devices, um, there's Alexa. I don't know if you have Alexa. 
Alexa being the voice um, activated thing. And Alexa, actually, I said her name. So I'm going to actually see if Alexa will talk to us because she says like Siri. Like Siri, like Siri. Artificial intelligence. Yes, and absolutely. And she's connected to Amazon. I don't know if I can say, Alexa, how are you today? Where's the closest barbershop? Here are a few nearby popular ones. Kenny Max Barbershop, Reflection Hair Salon, Mary's Unisex. Alexa, pause. Um, So (laughs) I can talk to a little circle on my desk. In fact, I tell Alexa all day long to play different forms of music. I just said her name and she lit up again. Um, But voice activation, um, voice technology is the next revolution in digital. The fact that my mother can talk to her phone at 80 some years old, she doesn't, she's not good at typing. She loves that she can literally Google by voice. And Alexa, what's fascinating about Alexa is because it is Amazon owned, it's also plugged into all of our shopping behavior and our search behavior. So it, it, it's, it's the next big innovation. And I, I can't help but mention voice technology. And as you point out, um, Anthony, um, um, artificial intelligence. Yeah, uh, you know, Siri, uh, we don't have Alexa here yet. I'm sure it won't be far away. But uh, I know you and I previously had conversations about um, in the UK, they're trialing uh, Amazon delivery by drone. And I know in the U.S. there's been some problems with the uh, uh, well, with the government basically about you're not allowed to operate drones that are out of the line of sight of the operator. Uh, but I know that Amazon over here are currently trialing that um, and delivering products. And when you when you look at the videos of it, it looks very far fetched and and you know like something out of the Jetsons. It's never going to happen. But if I told you you'd have your uh, device in your back pocket and what that was capable of 10 years ago, you would have said that's never going to happen as well. You know, if I told you about Alexa five years ago, you would have said that's not going to happen. And, you know, I think we'd be naive to think that um, that we're not going to have drone delivery. I mean, I know that you've told me in the past that there's already somewhere in the U.S. Um, that is in line with a uh, an Amazon store where they have even trialed it direct to a salon. Is that correct? It is correct. And we had that conversation. It was, I met a salon owner whose name is escaping me, but we, we met at Paul Mitchell Gathering a year ago. When, uh, you were a guest speaker at that same event, I believe. Yes, I was. I was. And, you know, it's it's amazing when you, you, you know, consider that that might happen. Um, I think you said to me, it was someone in Baltimore, if my yes. memory serves me right. You have a good and, memory. You know, uh, it, it's 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 amazing to think that this is the future, and it's not so far in the future. That's uh, the thing about it. You, you, you can never afford to think that it's going to stop where it is now. It's always changing and evolving. And, and you just mentioned about uh, Amazon um, with a salon and spa category. I can't wait to Google that because I heard – well, we have a blog over here, which uh, it's called The Business of Fashion. And you often oh, ask me. I love you know, them. I love you, them. You get it. Fantastic. Yes. Well, the, I, I read something on there probably a month ago now. And it was uh, Tev from uh, Luxury Brand Partners. And he was being interviewed on it um, ab- about about this very subject, about, you know, is um, luxury uh, hair products, um, you know, ripe for um, you know, having different outlets, i.e., through Amazon, and uh, as you said, that they had managed to stop all the all the diversion going through Amazon, and so now, um, you know, luxury brand partners are officially selling through Amazon. And I think when in the article I read, Ted was going, "It's incredible. We're now doing thirty percent of our sales of Orbe." Uh, through Amazon, which is brilliant. And he was predicting it would be 50% within two or three years. So this is an example of 
of what I mean where some hairdressers out there will be going, that's not fair. They shouldn't do that. Well, the world that we live in is changing and how people purchase product, um, how we all purchase product, like, you know, the hairdressers that sitting there saying that's not fair. They're quite happy to download, you know, uh, their Netflix video tonight. They're quite happy to go online and, and, and buy a, you know, a new dress or new pair of shoes at a discounted price or a new TV or whatever it is. So why should our industry be any more protected by that? Because people now want to shop online. And so the, the manufacturers and distributors would be naive if they didn't adapt their business model to capture that market. Um, I know, you know, I, I do a lot of work with Paul Mitchell. I know Paul Mitchell have recently, or last year, about 12 months ago, uh, launched a new product called Neon. And Neon is specifically aimed at that generation of, um, uh, the, you know, Generation Z, born after uh, 1998. And, you know, this generation have never known a life without the internet. You know, it's my daughter's generation. They are completely comfortable with technology and they shop online. That's just what they do. So, you know, for Paul Mitchell to put a product out that's aimed at them and not understand the channels by which that generation are going to shop, it would be, you know, remiss of them. So, you know, it, it is happening and it will just continue to happen more and more. And what we have to do as an industry is look at ways to capitalize on it that are positive to all of us. And sometimes those ways are not instantly obvious as to what they should be. But there's no point in jumping up and down saying it's not fair. They shouldn't do that. You know, we've built up that brand as professionals and it should be protected. That's just not the world that we live in. Well, and I, I think um, from a consumer perspective, I think it's important to say that if the industry doesn't participate, that potentially the loss will be greater. In other words, um, and I'll use myself as an example, I, I have a, a, a lifelong romance with the grocery store. In fact, I have three grocery stores I go to almost on a weekly basis. I have some sort of weird fetish for grocery stores. I love... I go in for milk and I literally go up and down almost every aisle. I can't explain it, but I, I love that grocery store experience. Yesterday, I ordered paper towels and toilet paper on Amazon. The day before, I ordered toothpaste and laundry detergent on Amazon. I literally order things I need almost every day on Amazon, which take away the need for a lot of the things that I would normally get at the grocery store. And why? It's just convenient. It's just easy. When I need it, I push a button. It comes uh, free shipping because I'm a Prime member. Um, and anything that's that's big and bulky or that I just know that I need, I'm gonna my my behavior has changed. And as all of our behavior begins to change, including not just the young generation, but but those of us who are older, we're gonna see shifts that directly impact the salon as, as you are addressing. So we have to react. We have to accept that change is happening. And to your point, it's like, well, what are the new strategies? How how do you? Um, sell more retail in real time because guess what? Most of us still will react positively to that retail pitch in the salon if it's done the right way. How do you how do you up your game on services? I mean, there's so much that can be done, and we we both know salon owners who are doing it very successfully. Um, so everybody needs to know there there are strategies and solutions to dealing with whatever negativity from a selling perspective that might come out of technology. 
Exactly. But, uh, I mean, uh, what, what the, the important thing to acknowledge, the start point for everyone is to go to understand that everything has changed. How we communicate has changed. How we teach and learn has changed. How we market our products and services has changed. How we work has changed. How we book appointments, how we pay for products, how we ship products, how we buy and sell. It's a changing world. So what we need to do is go, what are the implications for me and my business? How are we evolving to embrace those changes and to uh, grasp the opportunities because there are always opportunities. It's just about looking at it, not from a place of fear, but looking at it from a place of um, opportunity. And that's where different generations come at it with um, a different perspective because they don't necessarily feel hard done by because they're not going, well, it's always been like this. Why can't it stay like this? Because they don't have that history to sort of, you know, base their complaints on. So, you know, um, I, I, I always like to uh, look at the way different generations um, are adopting or adapting to change. And, you know, but, but I hate sort of the stereotyping that automatically goes with each generation where people say that, you know, baby boomers are like this, millennials are like that, Generation Z is like this. You know, yes, I think we're a product of where we are and the time that we were born in. But I'm more likely to to to, to want to say that instead of millennials are like this, I'm more likely to want to say people are like this now because I don't think it's just millennials that um, – uh, want instant gratification. I think we all do now because that's the world that we live in, that we live in this world of wanting things straight away. We're used to getting things straight away. Whereas 10 years ago, 15 years ago, without all this technology, you just simply didn't get things straight away. You couldn't download a movie just because you wanted to watch it. You, you had to get in the car and drive down to, you know, Video Easy or whatever, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to purchase the movie, then bring it home and then watch it. You know, it was a, everything took longer. So the positives that have come out of it are fantastic, you know, um, but they have changed the expectations that people have. And so. In, a, in the context of our industry, some of those changes that you'll often hear people talk about is they'll say that young people today want to be successful overnight and they don't realize that it takes time. Well, I, I hate it and I, you know, bite my lip if I ever catch myself saying, you know, when I was a boy, this is how we did it <laughs> because no one cares. Right. That, you know, it's like, it's move on, granddad. No one wants to know about what it was like when you were a boy. We live in a different world today. And so what we have to do is to look for those opportunities that are in that world today. And, you know, the uh, the generation of people today, or not just all people today, you know, they have different attitude to a work-life balance. They expect more uh, flexibility. Um, how this starts to um, impact uh, on our lives as as professionals is that people, you know, they want to make appointments online, for example. Um, if I go back to when I started hairdressing uh, at the end of the 70s, you know, essentially hairdressing was a five-day-a-week business. You might do one late night. Um, but what you also have to look at in the context of that is that when I started hairdressing, most 
women didn't work. I mean, you know, once they had, had gone to college or whatever, maybe they worked for two, three, four years, got married, and then they stopped work to have a family. So, of course, they could come to salons during the day. Now, fast forward to 2017, most women do work. So, therefore, the impact that that starts to have on our industry is that a five-day-a-week business that has one late night is, you know, it's just old news. It's never going to survive. So people want to be able to book out of hours. They want online booking. They expect, you know, two, three, four late nights a week at least. They expect more and more Sunday trading. Um, and that's the world that we live in, and there's no point in fighting it. You know, so it's it's how do we or how is that impacting on our businesses? Because it is impacting on our businesses uh, dramatically, and it's changing the business model that is hairdressing. And a lot of people don't like those changes. But as I said, it doesn't matter that you don't like them. They're happening anyway. And you can see how both technology and consumer expectations and consumer lifestyles are starting to have that impact on why the business model needs to change. And again, bigger context. And I I think that frustration that you, that you talk about that so many feel about these changes especially you know those of us who are older all of that you know has to be looked at in the context of the larger world not just technology but i have a 24/7 walgreens drugstore down the street from me i have a 24/7 grocery store nearby i expect to be able to get groceries at 4 in the morning even though i never have the world we live in i can I, I know that businesses are open seven days a week. I expect my salon to be. I mean, we all the things that we see happening in bigger business all around us, whether it's the hours that you reference, whether it's the way that we engage for appointments. If I can't make an online appointment, I, I'm not coming to see you. I know that I need a haircut at 6.30 in the morning when I get out of the shower, you know, or I know that I need a haircut at 10.30 at night. No salon's open. And I'm just that guy. And, and in, in the old days, what did that mean? It meant instead of showing up in the salon in four weeks or six weeks, I showed up in eight weeks. Now, because of online booking, when I look in the mirror and say, oh, got to get to the got to get to the shop, I, I book it. And so what does that mean to the hairdresser, to the salon? I show up more often. I spend more money. It's a good thing. Yeah. And yet today I will still meet salon owners that don't have uh, online booking. And, you know, no, no matter how much you talk about it to them, it all boils down to one thing at the end of the conversation. And I say to them, in five years' time, do you think there'll be more online booking in salons or less? And everyone answers more, obviously. And so it's, well, why wait? Why are you being a follower instead of a leader? And I have not met anybody who is doing online booking who wishes that they weren't. Now, I'll put one little caveat in there. A lot of them have challenges around clients booking color appointments. But you know, the life, you know, the life is full of challenges and you have to find ways to make it work. And everybody finds ways to make that work. So don't look at those excuses as being things that, um, you know, stop you moving forward. If, if people put the same amount of energy and attention into going, okay, how can I make this work? As opposed to justifying why they don't embrace it and do it in the first place, then they'd be a lot better off. You know. Well, and I want to add to that, that um, what I hear most often from salon owners on the issue, especially if I'm doing a class on the, on the issue of um, online booking, is invariably a number of people will raise their hand and say, well, my clients don't want it, don't need it, haven't asked for it. It's not a problem. And my response is always, well, 
how many clients don't you have that you don't even know about because you don't offer it? Because again, if I was looking for a new salon, I would not go to your salon, regardless of your reputation, if I can't book online and I'm not an unusual person. So the other side of that coin is what business are you missing because you don't have it? Forget about your current clients. Exactly. I mean, those same clients, they're booking their holiday online. They're booking their takeaway online. They're booking a cab online. Um, you know, wake up and smell the roses. They want to book their haircut online as well. Um, you know, that's that's just a reality. And if if you're not doing it, um, and one day they're trying to get a haircut, they will go to another salon that is doing it, and then you've lost them forever. Everyone I know who does online booking says it's growing their business. Everyone I know who done it who does it also says they can't believe. The amount of people that book appointments at one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. You don't need to know why they do it. The fact is they just do it, you know, um, and that's you know good for your business. But the, the other impact that this is having on this industry, all of this, is the, the way it's affecting the business model. Do you use the term gig economy? Um, I know what I know what it is. And you're talking about the independence, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a real buzzword here, but I weren't sure if it was one of those terms that's used everywhere. Um, but you know, if anyone doesn't know, you know, the, the gig economy is this uh, this business unit of one where every every job's a gig. You're self-employed. You're independent contractors. It's it's epitomized by the Uber driver. You know, it's a gig economy, and you know, it's a it's a freelance or sharing economy that give people the opportunity to work for themselves, and and that attitude um, of wanting to work for yourself, of wanting that flexibility about how and when you work, coupled with the technology that people now have available to them, is what is fueling this change in the business model, where you've got more freelance, you've got more self-employed, whether you call them booth renters, rent-a-chair, independent contractors, or salon suites. They're essentially independent contractors that are a business unit of one. And a lot of people don't necessarily like it. But again, it doesn't matter that you don't like it. It's a model that is working very well for a lot of people. And it's, you know, a very much business model that is in demand. So it's really important, I think, to, to uh, and it is, it's not uniquely American, but it is certainly stronger in the US than anywhere else. In fact, I actually first saw it in Japan. Uh, but the way, uh, but not on the scale that even nearly that it is in, in America at the moment. And and seeing how, uh, you know, the salon suite model is expanding from, you know, West Coast to East Coast is, is like a tsunami of change. And I know that it upsets a lot of people. I know some people like it uh, and some people, uh, you know, don't like it and think that it does a lot of damage to the industry. Um, it, again, it's not going to go away. So it's about looking at it and going, okay, how can we make this work for us? What's a positive spin we can put on it? Because it is happening and you can't stop it. So many Americans look to the British salon model. I think, you know, there's always been talk about, you know, it's, it's a little different. You know, you have, I think, you know, the apprentice model. I think payment perhaps is a little different in some regards. Um, you mentioned it's, it's not as big over there, but the independent model, is there a British version of it? Or are there suites? Uh, no, there's not. Um, I, I first saw suites in Tokyo about 20 years ago. Um, but and what it was was that there's a there's a street in Tokyo called a Moto Santo, and a Moto Santo is like saying Madison Avenue. So it's like you know the shopping street. And uh, I got taken into this uh, this building, and there were 15 salons in there. 
um, uh, and it was on seven floors. So it was a, you know, a seven story building that had 15 different salons. In. And I can remember at the time just looking at it thinking you would not want to be on the top floor because, you know, that, that's, this was the first time that I'd seen all these businesses together in one place. Uh, now, I don't know if that influenced, you know, or, or how the uh, original uh, salon suite started in, I'm assuming, California, but I can see and understand why the model works. You know, now, whether it's a model that I would want to work in um, is a different story, but I can see why it would work for a lot of people, you know, that it's a perfect fit for certain lifestyles that people have. Um, and, and you know, for, for certain people that have the range of skills, you know, using social media, for example, effectively, they can really make a go of that and make a fantastic little business because that's what a uh, all these apps, all this technology has allowed people to do. It's allowed people to start a business that they could never have started before because they couldn't have afforded an advertising agency, a PR company, a graphic design agency, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now these kids are just doing it on their phone, not just kids. People just do this on their phone and do it very effectively. And so that is what's driving the business unit of one. So once you couple that, with this business model of salon suites, you can see it is this perfect storm of the technology, changing consumer expectations and changing uh, business models. And that's what's fueling it. Well, and, and as you mentioned, this larger you know gig economy, this larger freelance economy, it's way bigger than beauty. I mean, in, in, in America, the medical profession has long been kind of a gig economy. Doctors work in suites in medical centers and, and have all those marketing services, you know, both technology supported and otherwise that have been around for a long time. Realtors in America work in suites and they work in collectives of as independents and they're paid as independents. There's many other examples. So, Again, like so much that we're talking about, there's bigger shifts in the world that are happening. And actually, like most shifts, we're actually a little bit late to the party. Um, we, we tend to be a year or two, sometimes longer behind the rest of the world, I think, when it comes to business trends. And this, this gig economy is happening big time, but we've had Uber for a few years now. So um, fascinating and you're spot on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that uh, the US is leading the way in this. And uh, a lot of people might look at it and go, that'll never catch on here. The sun and sweet thing I'm specifically talking about. And and whether it will or won't, um, I, no, I think it will. It will just be interpreted in a slightly different way. It won't be as big. See, the, the fundamental reason why it won't be as big is real estate. So you think about Europe, it's smaller and it's a lot more condensed in, uh, in terms of population. Most of the salon suites that I look at and have been to, you know, they're big businesses. They, you know, they're on one level and they have a big car park around it, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why it works. Well, you just simply don't have the, you know, the real estate available to you in the UK or in most of Europe to do that. So I think you will see uh, smaller versions of it. You definitely have rent a chair and all that sort of stuff happening. But, you know, and, and that's always happened. And, and again, that is being fueled by the fact that salon owners are not making the profit out of businesses that they used to. And so to, to ring fence their margins, they're giving people the opportunity to be, you know, self-employed. So instead of me guaranteeing you X dollars every week, you now have to guarantee me X dollars. So they're ring fencing a profit. But that is fundamentally, you know, not a good thing for the business, for the industry, that salon owners do not make the profit out of their businesses that they should. 
And, you know, and that's the same all over the world. So that's not a US thing or a UK or a European or Australian thing. It's the same everywhere. And it's a real problem. And it's because, you know, the percentages that we pay um, employees are crazy. It's, it's, it, there is not another industry out there. Now, I know employees will be listening to me and going, you know, you know, yada, yada, yada. All right, granddad, move on. But, you know, can you imagine getting a job at at Starbucks and saying, okay, 50% of every coffee I sell goes in my pocket and I'm going to open my own coffee shop around the corner and take the clients with me. Or can you imagine getting a job at Zara and saying, you know, 50% of everything I sell um, is is mine? Uh, or, you know, m- make it a little bit more like a, a service industry. Imagine you call an electrician into your salon to do some work and they send one of their team and that team member who does whatever the electrical work is or a plumber, you know, that, that imagine that they think to themselves, I get 50% of what they build, and when I open my own business, I'm going to take them with me. They're going to be my client. The, the fundamental premise of paying people 50% and in some cases more and thinking that you can still run a successful business, whether you're in the UK, whether you're in Australia, whether you're in the US, is dream time. Unless you're doing extraordinarily well paying low rent or something, it's just simple maths. There is nothing left for profit. So what you end up with is a situation where the salon owner isn't really making a profit. The salon owner is working for the staff. The staff aren't working for them. The, the commission levels as an industry all over the world are ridiculously high. And so the margins that are left for salon owners to make a profit out of, to then reinvest in, into growth, or heaven forbid, to just make a profit, are unbelievably small. And that's why no matter where I go, and I work in 50 different countries, no matter where I go, the average profit margins that salons are making are four, five, six percent. You know, sure we hear about these people that are making, you know, 10, 15, 20% profit. We hear about these people that are, you know, uh, extraordinarily wealthy and, and uh, you know, have, have country homes and, you know, have great holidays and they're celebrity hairdressers and, and kudos to them. I take my hat off to every one of them uh, and congratulate them. And they're obviously doing a lot well, but they are not this industry that they are. They are less than one in a hundred. They're like one in a thousand. Across the board, they are not representative of what this industry is like. Across the board, this industry, in terms of salon owners, they do not make a good living. Most of them, as you alluded to earlier on, are behind the chair, fully booked all day doing a column of clients. So, you know, they're not making good profit out of it. They essentially have bought themselves a job. Their business is essentially a lifestyle business. It gives them a good lifestyle. And, you know, maybe it pays for their car, they get some nice holidays and, you know, they shop in Prada once every six months. But they're not, you know, the affluent business owners that many employees seem to think they are. And so that's why employees then go and they open up their own businesses because they think they can do it in a better way. And then they very quickly find that it's not a better way. And so, therefore, again, you can see why this business unit of one the salon suite model, the independent contractor, the booth renter is so popular. Well, and if you go back to the the, the commission conversation, which is a, a very complicated one, and if you're a listener who's on the salon owner side is going to have one reaction to what you just said, and, and I think a commission stylist is going to have another. And I think um, the conflict in all of this is I think all of us want stylists, colorists, you know, those working behind the chair to, to make great livings. And 
I think the biggest challenge the industry has, which is leading to the shift in business models, is that A, as you say, the average salon is is lucky to be making three, four, five percent on the bottom line, which is which is not sustainable for any business. Um, having said that, the average stylist, in spite of those high percentages, is still not making a great living. So we've got two very different issues that are in conflict with one another. You know, wanting wanting to raise the 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 wages and and the, the take home pay of stylists generally, the entire industry deserves a raise, um, and at the same time trying to in, encourage, inspire, and and, and create um, healthy businesses. And at the moment, arguably, we have neither in the aggregate. The majority of stylists in America, at least, are, are grossly underpaid, and 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 the majority of salon businesses are grossly underperforming in terms of profit, and that. Creates creates what I would consider to be a very chaotic salon economy. And I would say uh, the, the, the quote I would apply to that idea is that out of chaos comes opportunity. And I don't remember who said that. It might have been Peter Drucker, but out of chaos comes opportunity. We are in chaos and, um, and have been for some time in many ways, not to say that there aren't many successful salons, but collectively we're in chaos. And out of that chaos, the opportunity for some has been to take advantage in a good way of that independent suite model, whether it's large businesses that are creating them or individual stylists or owners who are migrating to them. And we're just at the start of this wave and who knows what else will come out of it, including new salon models. But again, we're in a very chaotic model, no matter, or not model, we're in a very chaotic time economically for salons, no matter what angle you look at it from. Yeah, but the, the, I, I totally agree with everything you said. And fundamentally, uh, and I agree that employees, hairdressers, are not paid enough. And the reason they're not paid enough is because they're not productive enough. And the reason they're not productive enough, in other words, they don't produce enough money at the end of the week, is that they don't charge enough. And so because the salon owner doesn't charge enough for his services, the stylist can't be productive enough. So the stylist then is leaning on the salon owner as an industry, this is a, a generalization, to give them a higher percentage of what they're doing. So the, 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 the salon owner is giving them you know, 50% or even more of what their take is. Now, it's a, it's a simple thing. What would you rather have? 50% of um, uh, uh, $1,000 a week, just as a simple bit of maths, or would you rather have 40% of $2,000 a week? So what I'm saying is it's not about increasing the percentage that the employee is paid. It's about increasing what it is they're getting a percentage of. So in other words, if currently the average stylist in the US was producing, let's say, $1,500 a week behind the chair, it's about in getting that to $2,000 a week behind the chair so that the, they're earning more money because they're productive and the salon owner is making a profit. And it's not so that he can you know, take months off and float around the Mediterranean. It's so that he or she has that money to reinvest back into training and developing their brand and building up their people and giving everyone a career path and the opportunity to grow and make more money. That's the problem, and that's the problem everywhere. That's not a US problem, unfortunately. And it's this self-perpetuating problem that because they, you know, if we go back to they don't charge enough, why don't they charge enough? Well, fundamentally, hairdressers don't charge enough because they compete on price. Why do they compete on price? Because there's too many salons. 
Why are there too many salons? Because hairdressers working for someone else are not making a good enough living and they look at what they're putting in the till each week and they think if I opened up my own salon, I could keep all of that. So they, they, they add to the problem by going and opening another salon. And what I just said is the most important thing that I've said in the last hour. And that is the problem in the world of hairdressing. And and again, I do this with everything, but I, you know, as some as a student of economics, you know, in the industry and as well as beyond, you know, I have to f- offer up the larger context. What we just said, what you just said about salons, I completely agree with every bit of it. Um, it's also true of dry cleaners. It's true of restaurants. It's true of practically any small business category in America. I can't speak to the rest of the world. Um, in America, we have this culture of entrepreneurship and, and almost a, a God-given right that we can be our own bosses. And it's a great ideal. But when we take the, the bigger idea of economics and supply and demand out of the equation, um, that's when things go awry. And today, small businesses, there's too many of them. For, and this is why across all categories, small businesses in America are highly stressed and uh, across categories are not succeeding. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I lived in Australia for a little while. I always remember a shopping mall that opened up there that had, uh, I think it had 240 stores in it. And um, I was working with a client who opened a, a salon in there and there were 16 salons. So there were 240 stores, 16 salons. There weren't 16 dry cleaners. There weren't 16 drugstores, there weren't 16 news agents, but there were 16 salons. So, uh, 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 you know, opening up a hairdressing salon is a comparatively easy business to open up. It has a very low point of entry in terms of what you need to get a salon open. Um, uh, whereas a lot of other businesses have a much higher cost factor in getting them open in the first place. I agree with what you said about. Um, you know, America being the sort of, you know, the, I, I'm not sure the words you use, the land of opportunity, the entrepreneurial spirit where everyone has a go. Very much like Australia, same sort of mentality. But you see that in our industry, that that reaches a point where it actually starts to have a negative effect. Oh, I agree. And there are lots of, lots of people out there in business that should not be in business. They should be working for someone else. They'd have less stress. They'd have more holiday and they'd make more money, have better training and more security in the process. Uh, but that's not the way it is. And hey, I'm not pretending that I have a solution for all this. I'm just looking at this is the problem. And, and I, I sometimes think, you know, when sometimes when people say to me, uh, again, I alluded to the fact I lived in Australia for a while. The Australian government were, were pressured by uh, the hairdressing industry to um, put hairdressing on the list if you wanted to immigrate to Australia, they have a list. And so on that list would be, you know, nuclear physicists, uh, you know, surgeons, um, and there were hairdressers on that list. Now, the only reason hairdressers were on that list is because the industry pressured them. So if you wanted to move to Australia, you could move to Australia because you were a hairdresser, because the government were being told, we cannot get enough hairdressers. Now, I was always saying to them, you, this is, you've got this all wrong. You're asking the wrong people. If you ask the consumer, is there a shortage of hairdressers in Australia? Uh, the consumer will say, no, there's a salon on every street corner. There's a salon every 50 meters. You know, there's 16 of them in that mall down the road. So if, if you ask the consumer, there is no shortage of hairdressers. There are too many salons all competing for a limited pool of staff. That's the challenge. So as a result, you, you have all these 
um, you know, people coming into the country who'd done some, you know, five minute, uh, five minutes being derogatory. They'd done a diploma in hairdressing so that they could get into the country, but they could never get a job in a salon because they didn't have the skill, they didn't have the training, they didn't have the hours behind the chair. So it is just, it is a very complex, complicated problem, and there is no easy solution to fix it, no matter where you are. To me, it's... Again, another analogy to me, it's like fixing world hunger. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a very big, big idea. Um, what we can fix um, is the hunger that's closest to us in our lives, um, the, the hunger perhaps in our, in our communities. What salon owners can fix with the right tools, with the right mentorship, with the right education and role models, they can fix their salon. But what stylists can fix with the right mentors, tools, education is their careers. And I think that's so important to realize. Yeah, definitely. And I just realized you've really got me on my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I've been, I've been ranting and raving, you know, and I look, I hope it doesn't sound uh, uh, negative, you know, to, to our listeners. But, um, you know, no matter where I go, I see how challenging it is for salon owners. As you just said, it's not just salon owners, it's small business owners. And, um, I believe that it needn't be like that. And when you couple all of that stuff with um, a lot of business owners that are good at the skill of their business, so in terms of hairdressing, we're talking about they're good hairdressers, uh, but that is not the skill that you need to be good at running a hairdressing business. And so, you know, that's my sort of mission in life is to because that was me as well. I was a good hairdresser. I still am a good hairdresser. Uh, but when I opened up a salon, I recognized that because I was good at cutting hair, it didn't mean I'd be good at running a hairdressing business. And no matter where I go in the world, that's the same set of problems you see with everybody. So, you know, that's why I write books. It's why I do seminars. It's why I do one-to-one -one coaching. It's all aimed at developing the business acumen of the hairdresser because in many cases, they're just doing what they've always done. They're just following the broken business model because they worked for someone else before and he paid 50% or she paid 50%. That's what they do because they charge this much. That's what they do. But the model is fundamentally broken. And so when a model is broken, you are always going to get offshoots of a new way of looking at things. And that's what's happening with independent contractors, salon suites, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think that what you will see come out of this will be positive. I mean, I, I might be wrong here. My prediction is that if, if we look 10 years down the line, you'll see more cooperatives. So you'll see, you know, like I, I have a, a, a young lady that I've just started coaching in Virginia. And uh, on our very first coaching call, you know, I said to her, so and she hadn't even opened the salon. And, uh, you know, we were talking about what it was that she wanted her salon to be like. And she said to me, I want it to be a booth rental, but I want there to be a team atmosphere. So in other words, she wants her cake and she wants to eat it too, you know, because the two of them are not necessarily uh, going to coexist, you know, saying you want a team atmosphere, but you want people that are independent contractors is, you know, they're sort of at opposite ends of the scale in a lot of cases. But I think within that statement is what a lot of people want is we want people to take ownership for their productivity for their profitability, for how much they earn. But we also recognize that for a business to be successful, we want a team model. We, we want people that are there to help and support each other, that are, are there to you know, train another generation. 
um, and, and that work well together because when you work in a salon like that, it has a fantastic energy to it that just can't be replaced. The clients love it. The staff loves it. It's good for everybody, but it's a, it's a hard balance to get. So I, I think what you will see in the future is you'll see more cooperatives. And what I define as a cooperative is, you know, businesses where there is shared ownership and, you know, shared investment, shared responsibility and shared success. I'm already seeing, you know, some salons that are doing that. And in a lot of ways, it is like this, uh, um, independent contractor salon suite model uh, because everyone's sort of in it together. Everyone's got a real vested interest in making the business successful and understanding what it takes to make the business successful. So that's that's my you know prediction for the day. Well, and I would add to that, um, you know, I think a great role model in, in, in perhaps the future of rental and the future of suites in particular is. Um, Alexis and David Thurston's uh, Butterfly um, Lofts, which is a, a, a traditional salon, actually, um, a, as well as um, Sweet Salon, located in, in, in LA. They're the founders of Pulp Riot, the, ho- the hair color line. And um, I was just out there. And, you know, honestly, you know, I've long said that, you know, rental, commission, those are ways that we get paid, right? Those are ways that stylists uh, choose to be compensated. Um, and, and, how we are all compensated shouldn't matter to our clients. And when you go into to their salon, which is 100% rental, um, a traditional looking salon, chairs next to chairs, clients next to clients, a shared reception area, you would never guess how anybody was being paid. You would assume it was a commission salon. It's got great, it's got teamwork and spirit and education and, and all the support services a traditional salon would get in a rental environment. And then next door, they have developed suites. So as those um, members of, of their salon who are independents um, grow their careers and are looking for the next opportunity to up their game, to have their own private space, to be in a different environment, they can move over to the lofts. And in the lofts, because uh, again, I was there and I saw this firsthand, they are also provided by David and Alexis um, all kinds of resources, education, how t- classes on how to do social media. So I think everything that we're talking about, um, uh, the business model shifts, the business model opportunities out of those shifts, they apply across the board regardless of how people get paid. And I, I, I would add to your prediction, and I agree with it, that I also think that we're going to see a level of sophistication come into the marketplace um, that's going to kind of up the game of salons generally, whether they're independents or commission, those who embrace technology, embrace change, embrace all the opportunity and potential of the change, they're going to have great businesses, great careers, and great lives. And so in spite of all the challenges we talked about, there's nothing but opportunity out there. Yeah, exactly. I, I think what we're seeing is a polarizing of, of the industry like that. And I think that there'll be, you know, there are big businesses like sports clips that, you know, had 1500 odd salons, uh, from what I'm told, um, uh, across the US. And I think that that's at, at one end of the market, you have businesses like that, that are very strong and very successful. And I think at the other end of the market, these what I call micro salons. So again, that's essentially salon suites. I think that's successful. I think it's those people in the middle with three or four staff with a salon uh, that they're the ones that, you know, they're not quite sure what they're doing or where they're going. And I think in so many cases, they're in a very vulnerable situation. If two or three of their staff left, you know, their business is over in a heartbeat. It's finished. I, I haven't actually 
had the pleasure of meeting uh, David and Alexis, but I did listen to their um, podcast that you did a while ago and uh, very inspiring. I think they have a very uh, modern way of thinking. If anyone hasn't listened to it already, um, you know, I'd encourage them to read it. So uh, to listen to it because, uh, you know, very insightful, very on the button with, um, you know, how to think today about people and about business in general. So we have one other big topic that you and I wanted to talk about. We're, we're almost out of time. We're going to have to go to a third podcast, Anthony, um, because I know that we wanted to delve into the bigger topic of retail. We've touched on it. Um, and I, I, I always ask everybody uh, this question. I've asked it of you before, and, and we talked about tying it to this topic. So I'm going to give you one little moment to talk about this topic. And, and, and by way of my, my standard question of what's the best advice anybody's ever given you in business and why. And so connect the dots there for us. Okay. Um, when I very first started hairdressing, I started in a, in a, a small city, Wellington in New Zealand, you know, and uh, in 1978. And um, my first boss said to me, I'd been there about six months. And he said to me, bring your mum in uh, as a model. And um, he said, uh, she can have anything she wants and there's no charge. Uh, and I was like, well, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much. And he said, you know, bring her and I'll teach you whatever you're going to do with a haircut. I'll take you through a haircut. And if she wants a color, she can have a color. Uh, if she wants a treatment, she can have a treatment. Um, you know, if you want to give her a perm or whatever, you, you can do whatever you want. Uh, and retail-wise, you can give her some shampoo, you can give her a conditioner, you can give her any styling products, whatever you want, you can give her absolutely no charge. And I was blown away by this. And he said, but there is one catch. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you need to educate her about why you're doing what you're doing, why you're giving her what you're giving her. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's no hardship. You know, that's what I would have done anyway. So anyway, my mom comes in and, and uh, basically she was having a, you know, a wedge, you know, so very simple haircut. And he showed me how to do it on a, on a doll's head, a mannequin head. And so I'm cutting my mom's hair. And uh, I said to her, mom, I'm going to put a treatment on your hair. Um, I actually, no, first thing I said, I'm going to put a color on your hair. And I said, mom, it's going to be a semi-permanent color. And uh, it's just going to blend in the gray and you're not going to get any regrowth from it. And it will all wash out. It won't dry your hair out at all. And so, of course, my mum goes, well, that's very nice. Thank you. You know, so I, I give her this, uh, this semi-permanent color. And uh, when that's finished and, and uh, I've rinsed it off, I said to her, mum, I'm going to put a treatment on your hair. And this treatment, it's, it's, you know, it's not going to weigh your hair down. It's more protein than moisture based. But, uh, you know, it'd be really good for your hair. So that'd be very nice. So I put that on her hair as well. Then I rinse the treatment off afterwards and I blow dry her hair. And as I'm drying it, I, I first of all, I put some uh, some mousse on her hair and I squirt some mousse on my hand and I you know comb it through her hair. And I said to her, Mom, this mousse won't make your hair sticky. It'll give it a bit of volume and it won't, it won't dry it out. I'll just give it a bit of hold, you know, make it easier to style. And uh, and then I'd finished that and, and I did the same with um, – a shine spray and I got the shine spray and I squirted some of this on her hair and I said now don't put too much of this on mum because if you do it'll it'll make your hair oily you know but just a little squirt and, and just literally one puff and you know walk into it so to speak and uh, and anyway I finished her hair and I, I took it to the front desk and I got a bottle of shampoo off because he said I could give her the shampoo conditioner treatment everything so I got a bottle of shampoo out and I said now mum this is the shampoo you use it's specifically for chemically treated hair it'll make your color last longer and it won't dry your hair out this is the conditioner you use it's it's a very lightweight formula it won't weigh your hair down now this is a treatment that I put on your hair 
Um, and uh, don't put this on all the time, but just put it on once every couple of weeks, and it's more protein-based and moisture. It won't weigh your hair down. Uh, this is the mousse I use. Use a bit about the size of a tennis ball. Comb it through, put on your hair when it's wet, and then dry it in there. This is a shine spray that I used. You know, and remember, not too much, just one little puff. It'll make your hair shiny. It'll give it a little bit of hold, but, um, you know, that's it. So I load up this bag with all these five products, and uh, my mum walks out the door with a big smile on her face, and my boss calls me over, and he says, what have you just done? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I've just seen your mum go out the door. She hasn't paid. You've, you've given her, like she's had all these services. You've given her all these products. And I said to him, his name was Steve. I said, Steve, you, you told me I could do that. And he went, yes, I know I told you you could do that. But why did you do it? I said, well, what do you mean, why did I do it? He said, well, why did you put that color on your mum's hair? I said, well, because it made her hair look better. It made it a bit shinier, it made it a bit richer, a bit warmer. Uh, and I told her that it wouldn't dry it out and it would just wash out over time and it wouldn't have a regrowth. He said, great. He said, well, what treatment did you use? And I told him. He said, well, why did you use that one? I said, well, because that's more protein and moisture and it won't weigh it down. And I, I told her about how to use it. He went, fantastic. He said, what was that mousse you used? And I said, well, I, I used the one that was, you know, light hold, but it's not too sticky. And I, I told mum how much to use and how to dry it off. And he said, in the shine spray. And so basically, I went through everything. I told him why I recommended that shampoo, this conditioner, and everything I put in the bag for her, and she walked out the door. And he just looked at me, and he said, fantastic. He said, from now on, that's what you do. And I was a bit confused. I said, what do you mean? And he said, it's got nothing to do with the money. He said, because we didn't, you didn't have to talk to her about money, you gave her what was best. You gave her what you believed in that I really believed in that treatment, that I really believed in that semi-permanent, I really believed in that shampoo, that conditioner, those styling products. He said, and that's what you do. He said, it's not up to. He said, hairdressers make the mistake of thinking it's about money and they don't want to talk to the client about having this product or this service or taking this retail item. He said, it's got nothing, the money's got nothing to do with you. He said, the money is for them to decide. You just recommend everything that you know that would be good for them. And that was a lesson that I learned in 1978. Now I no longer work behind the chair, but when I was behind the chair with clients, that's how I approached every client. I wasn't a, a salesman as in, I've got to hit a target, I've got to get a certain goal, I've, you know, this is my three-step trick to make them buy more. I was authentic. I talk to you and recommend what I'm recommending to you like you're my brother. Or, you know, uh, my, my dad, I, I, I talked to every client like it was my sister or my mum or a friend of mine. I didn't think about the money. I was completely 100% authentic. And that's how to be successful at retail. People, we don't, people are sick of being sold to. We all like to buy stuff, but we don't want to be sold to. And I think that if, you know, because we started off this conversation at the beginning an hour or so ago, where we were talking about the importance of, of the fundamentals, which is being able to cut and color hair well and dress hair well, and giving people a good relationship. And the relationship that hairdressers have is a relationship that's built on trust. And when you build that authenticity into it, where you're talking to people about the products and services that you recommend for them, and it comes from a place of 100% integrity, that's when you will be successful. It's not about learning a three-step trick to increasing your retail. That's my belief. And so, you know, I learned that then, 
And when I worked in a salon for 25, 30 years afterwards, I was always at the top of the leaderboard in terms of retail sales. And it was because of that one lesson that I got taught in 1978. So that's the thing I'd like to leave with our listeners today. And that is a, is a, a lesson that could be applied to every part of, of the business, services, retail, you know, uh, marketing, you know, just putting your name out there, you know, being real and, and being trustworthy and, and being trusted by, by the people who, if you do that, will love you and will come back to you. So that's brilliant advice. Um, we are coming to an end and we didn't even, and we didn't, dig, and we didn't even <laughs> dig into retail. We're, we're going to say, we're going to save that for another time, but that was such a great place to end. Um, Anthony, t- tell our listeners how they can find you online. Oh, um, my website is growmysalonbusiness.com. My email address, if you want to email me directly, you can email me at Anthony, and that's without an H, so A-N-T-O-N-Y, at growmysalonbusiness.com. And on Facebook and Instagram, it's at growmysalonbusiness. And I'd love to hear from people. And Anthony is, a, you know, again, a repeat guest. We love having him. We're going to have him again back soon, I think. Um, you are an inspiring and speaker, educator. You travel the globe in, in support of salon owners and careers. Um, you're an author. You've got four great books, Grow the Super Stylist, Grow Management, Grow Team, and Grow Marketing. I recommend them highly for everybody. They can learn about, about them on your website. You have a great video series, um, The Two-Minute Salon Manager, um, that you um, also share with our American Salon um, audience on americansalon.com and as well as on, on your website and on your YouTube channel. We love you for all those things. I, I can't recommend your content enough for our listeners. Um, Anthony Whitaker, we thank you so much for coming back and visiting us again live from London um, on the American Salon Stories podcast. Gordon, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure once a day. I'm sorry if we did uh, run over schedule there. <laughs> <laughs> we loved it. It was a great- you get me on my soapbox, anything can happen. It's a great soapbox. I hope to have you up again there soon. Fantastic. And we'll be back next week with another American Salon Stories podcast. In the meantime, we hope you'll follow us on Instagram, where we are known as at American underscore salon, also at facebook.com forward slash American Salon. That's all one word. And of course, on americansalon.com, where you can also subscribe to our free newsletter, Your Daily Beauty Fix. This is American Salon publisher Gordon Miller, and I can't wait to bring you more American Salon stories next week.